Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and welcome to today's edition of This Week in Business History for March 29th, 2022. Hope this finds you well and glad to have you with us here today. Today, we're offering up a bit of a Baskin Robbins episode. That's right, it's a little bit of everything, but focused on several neat business history items, especially in the tech space. Now, before we get started, I mentioned Baskin Robbins a moment ago. It's a multinational chain of ice cream shops well-known for its 31 Flavors slogan. Now, did you know that Baskin-Robbins was founded in 1945 by Burke Baskin and Irv Robbins in Glendale, California? The company now has thousands of stores, roughly 2,400 in the U.S. alone, and it sells ice cream in nearly 50 countries. Baskin-Robbins has also introduced, get this, more than 1,400 ice cream flavors since 1945. Now, as I was growing up in Aiken, South Carolina, we had a Baskin-Robbins on the north side of town that we'd visit from time to time. But most often, we'd go to the Pink Dipper, a locally owned ice cream parlor that carried one of my all-time favorites, bubblegum ice cream. So as a kid, I'd eat my bubblegum ice cream and carefully set aside all the real bubblegum pieces that came as part of the ice cream. So after I was done with the ice cream, I would have this massive ball of gum that uh, the flavor would disappear after about three seconds. A summer wasn't complete without several trips to the Pink Dipper, for sure. So, well, ice cream, we're setting that aside for now, because today we're diving into an episode of This Week in Business History that shares a variety of factoids, again, focused on the technology industry. And we're starting with Wabash, Indiana. So stay tuned, and you better get ready to add a few facts to what you already know about business history in the tech space. Hey, before we move forward, though, be sure to take a moment to offer a review of our podcast and subscribe so you don't miss stories like this one here today. Thanks for your support. And now let's dive right in to this week in business history. So up first on today's show, focused on business firsts, factoids, especially related to the technology industry. We're going to be starting with what's up with Wabash. So Wabash, Indiana was first plotted in 1834. The name Wabash comes from a Miami, Illinois term for water over white stones. Its population is around 10,000 residents today. The Wabash River runs through the city as it makes its way to Peru, Indiana. 
Some of the major employers in Wabash, Indiana include Living Essentials, which is a manufacturing plant that produces five-hour energy drink. I'm sure we've all seen the commercials, right? Bulldog Battery Corporation, which manufactures industrial batteries and chargers and has been in operation since 1977. And you'll also find Manchester Tool and Die, who have been making all sorts of equipment, machines, and tooling since the 1960s. Born in Wabash was Mark Honeywell, the American businessman and founder of what is now Honeywell International, which boasts some 100,000 employees around the world. In fact, you can still find the nonprofit Honeywell Foundation in Wabash doing good work and great deeds. But I bet you didn't know this technological factoid about our friends in Wabash, Indiana. On March 31, 1880, it became the world's first electrically lighted city. On that day, at 8 p.m. sharp local time, on a cold and wet spring evening, four arc lights that were hung from the courthouse flagstaff would come alive, mesmerizing the local townspeople. And at that time, Wabash had a population of around 320 people, but over 10,000 people showed up for the lighting ceremony, and they were blown away. Consider this from an eyewitness, quote, The people, almost with bated breath, stood overwhelmed with awe as if they were near a supernatural presence. The strange, weird light exceeded in power only by the sun, yet mild as moonlight, rendered the courthouse square as light as midday, end quote. Okay, so technically, we probably couldn't claim that the entire city was lit up, but still, clearly impressive nonetheless. But there were lots of folks concerned about the development, such as one resident who wrote, quote, The plain dealer says the electric light will virtually turn night into day, and as chickens never sleep during daylight, it is only a matter of time when every fowl within the corporate limits of Wabash will die for lack of sleep, end quote. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Now, the arc lighting approach, which was pioneered by Charles F. Brush, would eventually be replaced by Thomas Edison's lighting system. In fact, the arc lights hung on the courthouse flagstaff there in Wabash would be replaced just eight years later. But you know what? You can still find one of the four arc lights there on display at the courthouse in Wabash. So number two on our list. Hey, what about Bob? Did you know on March 31, 1995, Microsoft would introduce its short-lived and wildly unpopular software package known as Bob? It would include eight programs at the time, a word processor, an email program, an address book, a checkbook writer, whatever that is, a personal finance app, a household organizer, and a trivia quiz focused on geography. And it introduced animated personas that would help you navigate the program. Do you remember Clippy from the late 90s and early 2000s? That was an animated paperclip on Microsoft applications. Well, that annoying thing was a descendant of Bob's animations and about as equally as popular. Microsoft sold Bob for about 99 bucks in 1995. But get this, Bob demanded a lot from the computers of the time, including what the Puget Sound Business Journal called a, quote, 
huge amount of memory, end quote, to run. That would be eight megabytes. Bob wasn't only unpopular with the market and end users, but also critics and industry analysts. Take, for instance, what the Boston Globe's Michael Putzel had to say back in 1995, quote, if it were being introduced by anyone but the largest software maker in the world with the clout to command attention in any marketplace, you would never hear of this program, and I wouldn't bother to review it. Bob would simply sink into the bog where bad products die quiet, unnoticed deaths, end quote. Ouch! How much fun would it be, though, to dig into that bog and see what else lies buried, huh? Next up on our list, have you ever taken the Briggs-Myers exam? I know I've taken several in my lifetime, mainly for employers looking to better quantify my personality. Well, it's been estimated that over 2 million people each year take the test, which is now known officially as the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. The original versions of the MBTI were built by a mother-daughter team, Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers. Now Briggs, the mother, got started by noticing how much different her future son-in-law acted as it related to the rest of the family. So she began to research a wide variety of biographies of the time, and Briggs eventually would develop her matrix. The talented duo would publish the Briggs Myers Type Indicator Handbook in 1944, but soon enough, Isabel Briggs Myers would eventually assume control of the Research and Indicator Program. Thus, the handbook would be republished in 1956 as its current name, the Myers Briggs Type Indicator. So, moving right along, on April 1st, 1976, the Apple Computer Company was formed. Now, you probably already know plenty about Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. But let's see what you know about a few of the lesser knowns that helped Apple grow and innovate in those early days. Did you know Steve Jobs wasn't the original CEO of the company? That would be Michael Scott. Nicknamed Scotty, Michael Scott would serve as the first CEO of Apple from 1977 to 1981. Scotty would ban all typewriters at Apple starting there in 1979 in a bit of a forced automation fashion statement. He would also terminate the Macintosh project at Apple, both in 1979 and again in 1980, before allowing it a three-month grace period where it had to show some value. On February 25, 1981, Michael Scott would personally fire 40 Apple team members. He would later be quoted as saying, quote, I used to say that when being CEO at Apple wasn't fun anymore, I'd quit. But now I've changed my mind. When it isn't fun anymore, I'll fire people until it's fun again. End quote. Man, real nice guy, huh? Now, Rod Holt would reluctantly join the Apple team, and he's credited with developing the Apple II's power supply. He would later, though, be let go by new management after about six years at the company. Sherry Livingston was the first secretary at Apple and was reportedly Steve Jobs' critical assistant in those early years. Chris Espinoza joined Apple when he was 14 years old and still in high school. He was still with the company as of 2018, making him the longest 
continuously serving employee. You know, Apple hasn't done too bad over the years. In January of 2022, Apple became the first U.S. company to hit a market cap of $3 trillion. So let's wrap today with just a few quick hitters. Some call Radia Perlman the mother of the internet due to her design of the spanning tree algorithm, which transformed the ethernet into a protocol that was able to handle large clouds. Perlman, the pride of Portsmouth, Virginia, never liked that nickname and would say that not just one person could invent such a thing as the internet, but rather it was born out of lots of contributions from a variety of folks. Did you know that Dan Bricklin is considered to be the inventor of the spreadsheet? He developed his spreadsheet program, VisiCalc, after working on a project for his Harvard Business School classes, and he wasn't satisfied with calculator-driven analysis. Finally, when you're asked about the inventor of the mouse, the computer device that's used all around the globe, well, your answer should be Doug Engelbart who would conduct quite a demonstration in 1968, where he showcased functions such as video conferencing and hypertext, all while using a device he had created himself, the industry's first mouse. All right, so that's gonna do it today. I hope you've enjoyed our show as we've walked through a few notable factoids related to the tech industry. And we even threw in some ice cream for good measure. Hey, let us know what you think. We'd love to earn your review wherever you listen to this podcast. Of course, my co-host Kelly Barner and I hope that you'll subscribe to the show so you won't miss a single episode. We publish new episodes every Tuesday. With all that said, we wish you a wonderful week ahead. Hey, this is Scott Luton urging you to do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And we'll see you next time right here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.